What an honor to be with you tonight. And thank you, uh, presbyters, for the fellowship that you share with one another in Sunday evening worship after a presbytery meeting. That is a model of fraternal relationships that is uh, very encouraging, and I'm grateful for that. Tonight, I have the opportunity to bring you a message entitled, The Biblical Theology of Thee. Okay, now you might say, what is V? That sounds like it's coming out of a Star Trek movie or something, right? Now, this is a look at Psalm 119 at the letter V in the alphabet of the Hebrew Bible. So we're going to look at Psalm 119, and I would like you to turn with me to the section that's called Vav. V is the English equivalent of the Hebrew word Vav. W-A-W, it's verses 41 through 48. So please hear the reading of God's word, and Lord, would you open our hearts and minds to understand these treasured words of your revelation. The scriptures declare, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I will walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Thus far the reading of God's holy and infallible word given by divine inspiration and translated for our benefit. Again, let's pray. Lord, open your word to us, we pray, by your word and spirit. Your word says that you would be our teacher and that the spiritual man alone can understand the truths of God's word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would now come and open this word to each of our hearts so that we would hear the truth that you would have for us. And it would be your glory that we seek most. We thank you now for this privilege. We trust upon you to open your word to our hearts and to guide our lives for your glory. And most of all, to see the Lord Jesus in his majesty. And we pray it in his matchless name. Amen. Now as we study this section... This is a Sunday night service, so I'm going to be a little bit of a teacher rather than just a proclaimer of truths of the gospel. So let's do some general educational reminders. First of all, let's remember that Psalm 119 is a remarkably long psalm. It has 178 verses. You're glad that I'm only preaching the letter V tonight because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Relative to size, we should understand that 14 Old Testament books are longer and 17 New Testament books are longer. To put it another way, 35 Bible books are longer than Psalm 119 and 31 are shorter. In other words, this is a substantial book of the Bible in its own right included in the Psalter. This lengthy study is also alphabetical in character. When you look at the original Hebrew language version, you'll find that each of the verses in groups of eight begin with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet and goes through it successively. So if, if you know the word Aleph is the first word, of the, Hebrew, the first eight verses begin with Aleph, and then 
Beit, Beta, and then G, Gimel, and goes right through all the way. So eight times 22 for our mathematicians gives us the right number of verses, 176. Now as we look at these words, one of the things that's problematic is how do we capture this alphabetical source of uh, emphasis and glory? And so all of our Old Testament exegetes, please forgive me, but I tried to use the same structure so you get the point. Let's read each verse as though it begins with a V. It might go something like this at verse 41. Visit me, O Lord, with your steadfast love, your salvation according to your promise. Vindicating words will then be mine to him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Vitiate the utter removal of the word of truth out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Very faithfully will I keep your law forever and ever. Vast open spaces are where I shall walk, for I've sought your precepts. Viewing kings, I will also speak of your testimonies and shall not be put to shame. Voluminous pleasure I find in your commands, which I love. Vertically will I raise my hands toward your commands, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Now imagine going all the way through that psalm with each of the... I've actually done that as a homework assignment. I won't read it all tonight. But a few of them might be a little bit skewed, but it gets the idea. So we see alphabetical, majestic size. We see symmetry, each letter of the alphabet in groups of eight. The theme is clearly all the way through a man in relationship with God through his word. The word of God is absolutely central in the binding together of God and man in relationship. Now the question about authorship of this unique book within a book in the Bible. It is a personal psalm. It's in the form of an I and thou. It is one man speaking to God as a person that he knows. An I-thou relationship. And it's amazing that this 36th longest book in the Bible is one in which we don't know its author, and we know nothing about the circumstances of who this person is, except to the extent that he reveals it in this amazing psalm. Now to summarize a few things about him that might help us to appreciate his themes, I identified these. First, he desires full obedience to the word of God and prays earnestly for God's grace and aid even as he fears the Lord and trembles before him. Two, He's lived long enough to counsel youth as an elder or a leader in Israel's community life. But he does not seem to classify himself as one of the aged, as his knowledge has surpassed that of his teachers and those who have advanced in years. Thirdly, he is known by kings and princes, some who oppose and persecute him. For he has well tested the promises of God and meditates on and memorizes God's word. Five, he sees himself as but a pilgrim or a sojourner and just a small and despised person. Sixthly, he has experienced severe affliction and sorrow that have brought him back from a period in which he went astray from the Lord. Further, we find he longs for the grace such that no iniquity will have dominion over him. He's praying for the breaking of the dominion of sin in his life. He says he prays seven times a day in morning and night, as the word of God is his delight, comfort, and deepest love. He is a marked man. 
He faces threats of shame, reproach, scorn, contempt in the face of persecution and adversaries who are the wicked who seek to ensnare him and to destroy him. He says they've almost made an end of his life. And then finally, he is a companion of those who fear the Lord, those who separate from evildoers. These will see his faithfulness and rejoice in his perseverance. Yet for all this, he recognizes his own limitations. Imagine the last verse of this extraordinary psalm tells us that he believes he's a lost sheep who has gone astray, yet he's still a servant. One who remembers God's commands and prays the Lord will continue to seek him. After we've done all that we seek to do, we are always but unworthy servants in need of amazing grace. That's the spirit of the author of the psalm. What title might we give to this psalm? The alphabet of a blessed life in God's word. An I-thou prayer through the word. The mutual covenantal relationship of a believer with God through the divine revelation of Scripture. It has an extraordinarily rich vocabulary of the Word of God. There are eight words it uses consistently, but there are about nine of them all together. I won't repeat them, but we do have some Hebraists here tonight. Go through and count them, how they repeat again and again. And the emphasis is that the Word of God, like a diamond with multiple facets, continues to have a ray of light that shines into the life of people to show what they need or what they should do to rebuke them and to bless them or to guide them. Clearly, the psalmist of Psalm 119 was aware of the great teaching of Moses in Deuteronomy. Do you remember how the fourth chapter in verse 45 of Deuteronomy says, These are the testimonies, the statutes, the rules, which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Well, those are three of the words that repeatedly appear in the psalm. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 11 puts it this way. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. In other words, the psalmist of Psalm 119 is a man who wants to hear the teaching of the Pentateuch and follow the standard of Moses. He wants to reflect David's prayer that was given for Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29, 19. Grant to Solomon, my son, David prayed, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and he may build the palace for which I've made provision. He trembled in fear for what ultimately was said through the prophet Jeremiah, which we read in Jeremiah 44, verses 22 to 23. The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and his statutes and in his testimonies. And that is why this disaster has happened to you as it is today. Indeed, he was mindful that this kind of judgment should come because in Psalm 119, our psalmist says in verse 126, It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Well, this I Thou Psalm, which relates directly to the Lord God, finally is a summary, is remarkable because the name of God is consistently the name which we translate the I Am, Yahweh, or the Old English Jehovah. This is the name that's used 
Is it a surprise? 22 times in the psalm? They're not used in each stanza, but the total of the names are the same number as what we find in the entire psalm. And only once is the general name for God, Elohim, used in the psalm. And it's only in the verse when he is talking about how the nations talk about God. And he uses the general name for God. But he's on a first name basis with the God of his salvation. And so we stop here for a moment and say, what should we take from this? Even before we begin to study this little stanza called Vav. Are you on a first name basis with your heavenly father? That you're passionately committed to saying, Lord, I want my life to be what your word says it ought to be. I tremble before your word and I delight to call you Abba, Father, my God in heaven. And I pour out my heart to you. It's a beautiful picture of one who truly knows the Lord. And so we might ask some questions as we begin to look at this marvelous psalm. Hopefully we're praying, as he says in verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. It's a great prayer to read Psalm 119 from its own 18th verse. We might ask the question as we begin to set to study it, why the alphabet in order? Perhaps he's communicating that it takes every letter of the alphabet to understand the system of doctrine contained in Scripture. Perhaps he's telling us that all of human language is not enough to tell us all that God knows and wants us to know. He's telling us that God has spoken in such a way that it's knowable, that if you can speak a human language, you can hear God's words, His voice is ours, that God's word is truly orderly, symmetrical, and not random. It has order and structure and system. And therefore, biblical theology and systematic theology is entirely possible because the entire alphabet is designed to communicate God's mind to us. And we might think more carefully, why the number eight of all things? Well, this is a little bit of conjecture, but because we're not told, we have to scratch our head and wonder about it. He makes it 22 times in a row, eight verses grouped together. Eight seems to represent in Scripture, possibly, the idea of a new beginning. There's seven days of creation and then the eighth day. We know that when there are the great feasts, there's seven days and then sometimes the great day that follows it. We know that in the Passion Week and Suffering of Christ, there's Sunday to Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the beginning. There seems to be a sense in which eight is a number of a new start of God's full giving of his blessings. There are eight very key words that are used repeatedly. Perhaps it reflects that. We know that Shakespeare loved 14 for his sonnets. These are the sonnets of Israel, and they love eight in their structure. It may have a meaning. But there's also one other point as we begin to focus on our stanza tonight. And that is in verses 41 to 48, it has the letter Vav, the letter V at the beginning. And that raises a very important question. What does Vav mean? Did you know it's a word in Hebrew? It is a word that means a hook. In fact, it's the word when you study the tabernacle. It's the device that holds the curtain to the frame in the tabernacle. It's a linking mechanism. So when you draw a Vav, if you're a Hebrew student, uh, you draw a hook. It's the hook. 
And so this hook is something that is implicit. It's also, interesting in Hebrew, a number. It's the number six. Now, we don't want to get into gematria now, which is a study of numbers and symbols with super meanings, but all of us know that it is biblical to say six is the day in which man is created. Six is the number in which man is to work, six days a week. And amazingly, in the book of the Apocalypse, that figure who's opposed to everything that is God's is said to have a number of a man, which is 666. So biblically, six represents something of our humanity. At the same time, it represents our day of creation, and it's in a number that represents the idea of a hook, of a linking together. Now, whoever this Hebraist might have been writing this, if these things that are part of his own language are in his mind, we might expect the Vav to have something to do of a linking together of God and man, of man's unique role of being in covenant with God. I'll have to see if that holds out. But what we need to see here then is that as we look at this theological passage, its structure beginning at verses 41 and 42 has two requests. Two requests, and then as you look at the remaining verses that follow verses 43 to 48, there are five resolves. In the sixth section of this psalm, in the sixth section that is a hook, it begins with two requests to God and five resolves from man, as if it's wanting to link God and man together in a relationship that is spiritually intense, close to the heart of the one who writes it. Let's take a look at those first two requests. In verses 41 and 42, it says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Now notice then the two requests. Number one, let your steadfast love come to me. And then the second request, verse 43, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. That first request, if you will, is an eschatological prayer. It is a prayer for something that is yet to come that has not arrived. It is, in fact, a sinner's prayer seeking a Savior. Notice carefully, it begins with the phrase, let. Hebraists call this the Joseph form. It's kind of a command that includes yourself in it and all of life. Let this be. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. It's saying, I'm crying out. I want it. I can't demand it, but I'm calling for it. Let what? God, Yahweh, your steadfast love. You know the word of chesed. This is the word of God's unbreaking loyalty with his covenant people. We find it beautifully portrayed when we hear Exodus 20 and verse 6 in the Decalogue. God describes himself as showing chesed, steadfast love, to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. When God reveals himself to that unique 
encounter with Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 34.6. He says, God's self-definition is this very goodness and steadfast love. He is a God who is filled with chesed, loyal love. Now we stop here and say, but the psalmist, God has already shown his chesed. It's been known since the Ten Commandments. It's been known since the revelation that is already given to uh, Moses when he was in the cleft of the rock. But yet it's still not come. It's here, but it's not here. It's anticipated, experienced, but yet to come. Let this steadfast love come to me. Oh, I am that I am. There's more of God's saving love that the psalmist is waiting for. Notice how it's described in the next line. Your salvation according to your promise. He is awaiting at this moment the saving work of God that has not yet fully arrived. In fact, it is beautiful when you study it in the original language. The word, O Lord, is the tetragrammaton, the name for God, coupled immediately with the word salvation. That's the word Yeshua, Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Let your steadfast love, it's already come, but I need more, Lord. You are the I am. Let the I am come by salvation with Jesus, the Hebrew name. The I am and Jesus are side by side. And this belief that the I am would bring salvation is according to your promise. A promise. It is God's promise. Well, there's lots of promises in the Bible. Might we be expected to ask which one? Well, maybe it's the very first one. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the seed of the serpent. You shall have, if you will, a male child who will be victorious. Verse 41 in the hook chapter of Psalm 119 is saying there's a Savior that is going to bring salvation to mankind. When we hear the word, let your steadfast love come, that means Advent. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. O Lord, come, the Advent. Verse 41 is the cry for God to complete the history of redemption that's only just begun. So that's the first request. Now there's a result that happens that before he comes to a second request, he says, when this happens, then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. He says, there are many who mock me because of my belief in Yahweh, my desire to follow in the law of Israel, to hold up Jehovah God as the great source of all blessings. But when that comes... Then I will have an answer that is decisive and clear. In fact, it's almost ringing the message of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. This is an apologetical text. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. At this point, he's saying, when the Lord comes, the defense will be decisive. He will reign, and he will be the Lord of all. Indeed, as Paul will say, 
Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Biblical apologetics is always looking to honor Christ as the one who comes in majesty. And so this eschatological, historical, redemptive cry is crying out for the Lord to come and there give a decisive answer to the mockery and unbelief of a world that's in covenant breaking with the almighty God of the universe. Then there will be an answer. But he must wait because he's still waiting for this coming. But he does so because of the end of verse 42, for I trust in your word. Again, the Hebrew word here is remarkable. Some of you might remember, if you studied Hebrew, the word batakti. The reason that word is interesting is that it's never used of any human being in the entire Bible except the godly wife in Proverbs 31. She's the only one. In him, he safely trusts. And this word has no equivalent in the cognate languages of the ancient Near East. It stands utterly sui generis to Israel. It is the word that only the God of the Bible is ever attributed to by the Bible. He alone is worthy of trust. All the rest of the gods, you take a Moloch or Baal or Ashtaroth, they are fickle, capricious. They give and take. They lie and deceive. You can't trust them. Ah, but the I am that I am, when he declares something to be true, he's not a man that he should lie. He's not a man that distorts the truth. He is the God of the universe who declares the end from the beginning, and it shall stand. He says, I trust in him, and therefore I know a day will come when the answer will be given to all of those who suppress and attack and deny the truth, and I'm waiting for him to come. He is the one who comes as the Savior under the promise of the I am that I am. Well, that's, if you will, the first request. It is a historical, redemptive request. In a certain sense, it's one that we still pray to, don't we? Because the Lord has come. He's been raised to glory. He's been seated on the right hand of the Father. But there are those that mock, that say, oh, where's the promise of this Lord's coming? But the day will come when the mighty God declares the truth of his word and vindicates his glory. And so we wait. And we honor Christ in our hearts, ready to give a reason for our hope, knowing that he is the one that one day will end all rebellion and bring all of his promises, one who's absolutely worthy of our trust. The second request, then, is one that says this in verse 43, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. He clearly is one who is being a witness, an apologist, a defender, a preacher of God's word. And his dread is that suddenly, and the word is so dramatic, it's like a shepherd pulling a lamb right out of the mouth of a lion. Lord, don't snatch your word out of my mouth. Like happened to Zechariah when he said, how can it be? It's kind of like Ezekiel the prophet. He couldn't speak except when the Lord moved. It may be like the liars, Ananias and Sapphira, whose very words and life ended together. Perhaps it'll be like the castaways of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Is it possible that the Lord could set us on the shelf, those who have proclaimed his word, 
have led and served, suddenly stripping it from us? Well, it can happen due to health. But God forbid that it happen because we break covenant with our living God. When the hook of grace that calls us in union with Him, we rebel and turn against Him. And we go our own way. This psalmist says, well, I went astray. And the adversities the Lord brought to me brought me back. Oh, let us hear the word of God as it's preached to each of our hearts today that we would be faithful where God has called us to stand boldly. What should keep us going? Hope in the sovereign standards of our God in his word and how important that is, especially to those of us who have been called to proclaim his word with our lips. Unclean lips to be sure, but cleansed by the coal taken from the altar like Isaiah. It is strategic and wise for the church to preserve the integrity of their pastors, our presbyteries, our sessions, our communities, and yes, individual pastors need to call one another to the highest standards of integrity. Well, those are two requests. It seemed to me they really reflect the very nature of our covenant, a covenant that calls the Messiah to come and a covenant that calls the preachers to be faithful to that covenant grace. Notice then that these two requests are followed by five resolves. We pray and then we promise. We look for God to initiate in his monergism and we respond in our mutuality of the covenant of grace. We are made willing in God's day to serve by his calling upon our hearts. Notice the five resolves and they might speak to each of our lives in different ways. We begin by looking at verse 44, the first resolve. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. This resolve, if you will, is one of the entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is, if you will, the first commandment. It's saying, I want to serve you, Lord, in every possible way. <clears throat> now, we all know in this fallen world, no human being can ever keep such a resolve. But is that not what the command calls us to do? That we are to love the Lord our God with all that we have, all that he's given us for his glory. And so in this context, then, we are called to say, Lord, I want to begin a process of seeking your holiness today that will go day by day, moment by moment, until one day I will walk with you forever and ever. I'll just keep walking until you take me to eternity. You know the old Sunday school joke, a little child was hearing the story of Enoch who walked with God and he was taken and he was no more. And the teacher said, what happened? The child said, oh, I think it's like this. God and Enoch enjoyed walking and talking so much. God one day said, you know, you're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come home with me? <laughs> well, may that be true of us, that we are walking with God. And he just says, come on home. It's time for you to be with me. Shouldn't that be the prayer of our hearts? That ought to be the resolve. We've asked Jesus to come. And we say, Lord, I want you to be everything in my life. The fullness is my haltering and stumbling and inadequate sanctification will one day be your vindication of redemption. You were raised for our justification and ultimately for our glorification. To be utterly one with the living Christ. Notice the second resolve. 
Not only will I keep your law continually, but secondly, verse 45, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Why would you walk in a wide place? Well, you walk in narrow places because you don't want people to see you. We call them back alleys, closed doors, shadowy places. The psalmist is saying, Lord, I want my life to be such that it's wide open and open book. The people look at me and say, this is what I am. You know the story that Spurgeon once told. Someone wrote a letter to seven prominent men in the city of London, and it was just this message. All is discovered, flee. And all seven men fled town. He said they had a guilty conscience. He had the courage to say, if someone said, Spurgeon, flee town, all is discovered. He said, well, come on, let's talk about it. We serve a God who judges the secret things of the heart, who knows what we're going to say before we say them. He knows when we rise up, when we lay down. He knows everything about us. And so the psalmist says, because I'm looking for a Savior, I want to live a life that's in a wide open place for all to see me, to serve faithfully. Notice his third resolve. He goes on to say, I will keep your law. I shall walk in a wide place. He says next in verse 48, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. He says, I will be engaged in public theology. I'm not going to be afraid to stand in the Congress or in the courts or in a community of debate and talk about what my God calls us to believe. I will do it, and I will not be ashamed. Not because I'm so great, but because my God is God of even the one I stand with. His word is over them and his truth is sure. The day will come when he will be vindicated. It's fascinating, the word in Hebrew for testimonies that is used here is originally in the Pentateuch, it describes, if you will, the very Ten Commandments itself. The Ark of the Testimony, the Ten Commandments themselves. But when you read in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the testimonies become the equivalent of what Deuteronomy required of the king to do, which is to make a personal copy of the law of God in his own hand. When the child king was set aside in office against wicked Queen Athaliah in the time of Jehoiada the prophet, he was given the testimony. That was part of the royal ritual. He was given a handwritten copy of the tent. He was only a child. He couldn't quite do it yet. But he said, you need to have the law of God in your hand. The law of God belongs in the public. It's to be given to kings. It's to be given for us. We are to proclaim it. We're not to hide our message under a bushel basket. But a light has been given to be set on a hill that where it cannot be hidden. And the truth is proclaimed because that word will one day shut every mouth. And the only king that exists in this world will stand boldly as the Lord King Jesus Christ. So we see here a marvelous resolve, a full soul resolve, feet that are in an open place, a wide open mouth proclaiming the testimonies of Almighty God. This is filled with delight and love for God's word. Notice how it says, is it reason for why do we do public theology? For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. When you love something, you don't hide it. You celebrate it. You tell her, I'm getting married. I put it in the courthouse, invite my family. 
It's, it's a public event. I want you to know about it. Love is something that explains itself openly. Our public theology, our witness for Christ is because we love God and we love our neighbor and we love God's commands that are true and right. We notice further as we come to a conclusion of this wonderful text. In our five resolves, it says, I will also lift up my hands. Notice how it puts it in verse 48. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. It says, when my hands get ready to move, do you know where they go? They reach for my Bible. I don't reach first for my remote. I don't reach first for my favorite beverage. Say, where's my word? I want to start the day. Years ago, I was challenged with the phrase, no Bible, no breakfast. When I get up, do I reach for my Cheerios or do I reach for the word of God? Say, this is where I need to begin. And then the fifth resolve, he puts it this way. I will meditate on your statutes. He says, I want my mind to not just say, cross that off the list. But having read the word as I go about my day, I'm saying, Lord, what does this mean for you right now, for me right now, for my community right now, for my family right now, for my day-to-day activities right now? I am in your care, Lord. How do I do it? If you summarize the resolves simply, he says, I want my entire soul from my feet to my mouth to my hands and to my mind to be yours. My goodness, that sounds like a hook, doesn't it? I'm totally hooked on God. God is hooked to me because of his salvation, sovereign grace. He, we love him because he first loved us. But because he loved us, we want to give ourselves to him. So as we conclude our time, we might ask the question, what is it like when you say, I want to give you everything I am, my feet, my mouth, my hands, my mind, because I love you? Why, that sounds like a wedding vow, doesn't it? This is a covenantal vow where God, who has come in redemption of redeeming his holy bride from the world, he now comes and says, I want to be yours, Lord. And tonight, that's my challenge to myself and to each of you. Do we really want to be fully the Lord's? I was just reading J.C. Ryle's book again recently on holiness. He talked about holiness in its simplicity. He says, I want nothing in my life that's unpleasing to God. Is that where you are? Of course we fail. Of course we sin. That's why the first part of this, oh Lord, let your salvation come to me. We can't keep it on our own. But out of gratitude and grace, in persevering love, say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to serve you. So tonight, there are two wonderful requests that our psalmist gives us. Salvation, and then the ability to continue to proclaim that salvation to the world. Which brings us to five resolves. We say, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, from my heart to my hands, Lord, I'm yours. I want to be yours and yours alone. Let's pray. Lord, would you ask your Holy Spirit
to come into our hearts and write these words deep within that we might be faithfully yours. Oh Lord, we would pray for our nation at this time. We see how we have turned so deeply away from the truth of your word. We pray through our witness and through our lives, through our educational efforts, through our service in the community for the way we live, the way we go about our business, that the hope of the gospel would shine through us. And Lord, perhaps we can identify with the psalmist who said, I've strayed like a lost sheep. Well, Lord, draw that one back to yourself. Lord, cleanse us from the inside out to long for you and you alone. And where we failed, may we confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to make us truly your people. So, Lord, be with this church, this presbytery, these families, each heart. And may our worship and our fellowship be pleasing in your sight. Send us forth, we pray, to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.